Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. There it is. I hit a button and it's like I've let go of the airplane and I'm like free falling into awesomeness right now. I can't wait to introduce the guest today. I am really excited about this conversation. I can't wait just to unload and unpack what is sort of all bottled up in here. And I'm going to be learning. I've got my blank sheet of paper. I'm ready to freaking rock. So let me tell you about her. She is a sales leader, a thought leader, a speaker. Topics like sales methodology, sales training, cost of inaction. And the marketers out there listening, we can benefit so much from just knowing a little bit more from the sales side. We're all working together. We're trying to make revenue here. And she is absolutely a B2B sales badass, host of Winning the Challenger Sale Podcast, chief evangelist at Challenger, Jen Allen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel like I need some hype music with that awesome introduction. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You like the hype horn. Little beastie boys coming on strong. Right. Thank you so much for having me. The lights, the fog machine, (laughs) you know, maybe some pyro too. Oh yeah. Bring it on. So let's get into this. I can't wait to just learn about the sales side, what I have been lacking on the marketing side. So I'm going to hand you this. It's heavy for me, but I know you work out. So here you go. Okay. Here, go ahead. Grab that. You got it? (laughs) I got it. Wow. Backhanded grab of Thor's hammer. (laughs) Way to go. Damn. You play tennis? Like that was impressive. No, not very well. All right. Take Thor's hammer. Okay. And smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Let's do it. Okay. The win-loss reasons your sellers, just like me, are entering into your CRM are telling you that you are losing to budget, timing, and competitors, and you are 100% being misled. Wow. So that stuff's just complete bullshit. It's like not even a thing. Well, let's think about it, right? Like think about the market we're in. Mm -hmm. We're in a market where uncertainty is tremendously high. And we as humans, right, we're no different in our personal lives than we are when we play a buyer role. What we love to do when things around us are really uncertain is we love to protect status quo, right? We love same because same is safe. And so what comes across as budget or timing or competitors in reality is often just like we are losing to the customer's gut feeling that's saying, I know you've got a great solution and it's better than what I'm using today, but that road to better involves me putting my political capital at risk. It involves time. I have to build a business case. It involves budget that maybe wasn't forecasted. And even if we buy from you, it means my team is going to have to stop doing something one way and start doing it another way. Our customers have wisened up to that promise of better. And so many sales and marketers, I don't put this on marketers. I don't put this on sales. I think we all have this belief is that when that happens, like we got to turn up the volume on the ROI message, the value message, the return of a customer doing something. And what I'm super excited to talk to you about today is it's not really ROI that solves that problem, right? It's COI. And COI is something I learned from my organization, Challenger. COI is the cost of inaction, the cost of doing nothing. So 
that's what I brought today. I hope it's interesting because it's my passion. Man, so much here. I mean, I I, th- I think back to sometimes I, I remember people always reaching out to me trying to sell me payroll software and like it sounds easy for them, but for me to think it's benefits too. And it's like, man, changing everyone's health insurance and and even shopping that. I, I never shopped it because I look, what I'm in, even if it's more expensive, like I don't have the time or the mental energy to like to make a change. And to your point, there might be danger flags up saying, like, if I do this, I could get fired, the company could implode. There's risk, and I don't really want that right now. Oh my gosh. I love that example. That is a perfect example of a place where someone could shoot you Casey a message and say, I can save you 10% on your costs of, you know, health insurance for your employees. And you look at that 10% relative to what could go wrong. If Sally thinks all of a sudden the benefit that I held so dear, Casey's now taking it away. What does that make her think about you? And we know that, right? So the message of we save you time and money and we're better, it starts to add up why it just doesn't have the impact that we would expect that it would. Totally. And I feel like these companies could totally utilize, like next time a payroll company calls me, I'm just going to send them the challenger sale book, right? (laughs) Or maybe I'll I'll like forge you the email or something, or I'll see (laughs) like, please talk to me after you've talked to Jen, because I I could totally perceive that they didn't understand the momentous amount of work that was going to go into. They're like, Hey, let's chat. And it's like, dude, I appreciate it, but like, go away. I like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, other times, other sales processes I've been through, you kind of get a sense that they're, they're trying to get a, you know, get an understanding of what you're going through. But I just remember with these like payroll and PEO providers, they, it was almost like they were completely out, out of the loop. They had no idea how, how insane it would be to shop this thing. And if somebody had just said, dude, I know this is insane, dot, 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 and something, I would have been listening, but I, I felt like no one actually knew where I was coming from. But Casey, it's it's just fifteen minutes. It's, it's all I'm asking yeah, for is right? just fifteen minutes. <laughs> it's like it's like, dude, it's not car insurance, you know. <laughs> this is like this is effort. Where does this come from? How how are we so misled? And and I mean, I've seen those little geeky ROI calendars and or, or calculators, you know. Yeah. Oh, put your numbers in here. Oh, looks, you're going to make 10 million billion dollars if you use this. Software. <laughs> like, mm, am I? Yeah, am I? It, so I will say, so when I started selling 17 years ago, I'm one of those weirdos that like never wanted to move up into sales manager or sales VP. I just, I love selling because I think it's something that is so difficult to master. And so every year I find myself learning something significant enough that it keeps me interested. But when I reflect on what, how I was taught to sell early on, it was all about this movement around value, 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 value. We got to hype up the value. And the way that many organizations and many sellers translated that was, well, I that value is determined by ROI, which is a return on investment, obviously. And so that was when I think the shift to this idea, like the idea of moving away from talking just about the product, but talking about the impact the product has worked really well in the early 2000s when it was new. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people held on to that. And some of those same people are some of the same people that are writing those emails today who still have this fundamental belief system that we as humans respond to the realization of a benefit. And I think if you look back, this is not like unique to challenge, or if you look back at like Kahneman and the work he did to study human behavior, what he learned is we as humans respond to the aversion of a loss 
right? Like, and there's a story I tell all the time. Um, so anyone who's heard me before has probably heard it, but it's like last year I stopped going to the gym. I'm not like a gym rat, but I was going three times a week and it was consistent. And then it was like, I had to wear a mask and work up busy and I stopped going. And all the time I'm like reading all this stuff in my Instagram feed and the news saying, you know, here's all the benefits of physical fitness, especially when we're in lockdown and it's credible stuff. Like it's telling me you will sleep better. You'll have less anxiety, go to the gym. And I still made the decision every single day for those six months not to go. Now, if during those six months I had had a doctor's appointment and that doctor said to me, Jen, you are going to have a heart attack if you don't do cardiovascular activity, my butt would have been in the gym the very next day. Because now all of a sudden there is a cost to my action right? A cost to my behavior, but I was reading things that were benefits of change all the time. So it really comes down to just, we as humans make stupid decisions all the time in an effort to protect what is safe to us, what is comfortable us, what we know. The aversion of loss. Like we will jump over hurdles to not lose something. We'll run away (laughs) screaming in fear. You know, I found that sometimes with like, like hiking trips or like big challenges, or, or like race or something, you book the thing, even if you're not ready. Cause then the idea of you being there and just completely failing or getting halfway and not being able to make it that, that scares me enough. And I'm like, okay, I, I got to go do this thing, you yeah. know, versus, Oh, think of how grand it'll be to, you know, be just great and smelling flowers as you hike up this mountain. It's <laughs> like, yeah. Something about that. Just yes. it's true. They're both kind of true, but something that you're right. It's that human energy, that human behavior that just makes us do that. I know. I think when I started to really figure out sales and again, like I would never say I'm a sales expert. I I mess things up all the time. I'm constantly learning, but I think when I really started to understand how to approach sales in a more effective way, or not even just sales, just like customer engagement is when I realized that buyers are humans. And as stupid as that sounds, I think sometimes we overcomplicate sales. And even in the way I was speaking to customers, the way I showed up, the way I, you know, would build my decks. I'm like, I'm talking to a human being and I'm talking to them like they're a PhD in, you know, academics. And especially with the constituency I sell to, I sell to sales leaders. There was just a complete disconnect between the story I was telling and what would actually activate someone to say, oh, I'm going to take the risk forward of of change. You mentioned building a sales deck and I recently built one. And one of the slides that made it even before some of the other ones, and it felt a little weird, but I feel a little reaffirmed now that one, the people like the slide deck. And then two, you saying this just now was a slide about like how much time this is going to take you. And it was just sort of like emotional, silly slide where there's like two bullets for them and like 30 for us. And it said like, and a lot more or something. It was just kind of silly, but it felt more emotional. Like to your point, talking to a human and saying, look, all the PhD slides you may see or may not see. In, the, in your back of your mind, just don't be thinking, oh my gosh, there's going to be more for me to do, more for me to do, more for, no, 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 we're going to handle everything. You're good. But yeah, how do we, how do we do that? Because I feel like there's this sort of professionalism that says like, have a clean deck and don't joke in it. And, you know, <laughs> be a robot, be um, a robot to, and, yes. and sell the robots too. <laughs> you know? So here's, here's what I've come to learn over time, Right. The number one flaw I see with decks, and the reason I like what the the slide you described so much, is decks tend to be built around trying to impress the customer about us. Like, 
I mean, I've worked with hundreds of organizations and I can't tell you how many have a deck that starts off with like a map of the world. It's like, here's how many locations we have. And then it's like the new, the customer logo side and like, don't you want to be part of this page? And then it's like, here's our mission. And they all sound the same. And none of that has anything to do with your customer's business. So the example that you shared, right? Like I was involved in um, the decision to, so I have a, a podcast for challenger and we realized at some point, Hey, we might want to look at an external partner to help us manage it. And one of the things this, uh, company we ended up working with did phenomenally well is they actually sized how much time we were spending on these activities, but we didn't realize it because there were four of us working on it. And so independently we're all doing our own thing, which kind of felt like somewhat reasonable. Like it was enough for us to feel a little bit of pain, but when they totaled it together and said, now take all of these hours, which sounds like exactly what you did, take all of these hours, where would you have rather allocated those hours, right? And I remember our faces on the call, we were sitting there like, oh my God, like anything, taking lunch in in a day would be a better use of my time than this. And I think what makes that so effective is you are holding up a mirror to your customer about their own behavior. You are talking about their business, not yours. And I've always been like, so icked out by like, everybody said, we're, we are customer focused. Like that statement in and of itself is not customer focused. Cause the first word in that sentence is we, right. And I think it became hip to just talk about being customer obsessed and customer focused. Mm-hmm. But to your point, when you look at decks, if the first page is us and our map of the world and our logos and us, 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 what signal are you sending to your customers? Right. And that's crazy that saying your customer focus, someone the other day used customer centric and you're right. But even just invoking that, it's like saying, it's like when you watch somebody <laughs> getting arrested on YouTube and they're like, no, I'm being honest with you. Like, I swear, I swear I wasn't driving that's not my backpack. Like, <laughs> it. It's like, I swear we're customer centric. And let me show you how, how all over the globe we're customer centric in our 18 offices. You know, I know I look Crazy. at it. I'm like, you ain't, you ain't customer centric, my friend, but that's right. okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons we have a business, so I can't harp on it too much. It's good. It's good for us. You know, and also the way I, I love this, right? So I've sort of like, I'm, I'm not so great at sales, but that's been helpful because I don't necessarily know the things. I'm just trying to be a person. Uh, and sometimes I'll describe something and I love that you were able to identify it. And you're like, oh, you're doing X, you know? I'm like, I just put a slide there and it just felt good. You know, it's like not knowing the grammar rules in elementary school or like junior high. They're like, oh, past participle, circle all of them. And I'm like, I have no idea. But if you showed me one without one, I'm like, oh, we're missing something here, you know? Yeah. And so you identifying that, that's really helpful. Are there other things like this that you, you see us doing that are just like, you want to just shake the marketing and sales team? Yes. Um, so I think one of the things that to me is, is significantly important is how you communicate that message. So the thing that drives me absolutely up the wall, up the wall, and I'm going to harp on sales for a minute is this idea that it is marketing's job to go build and create demand with customers. Um, And that we as sellers are the recipients of that demand. And our job is just take the orders and convert them. Like 
no knock to that. It worked 10 years ago, but especially in environments like we're in now, again, we're like, who knows where we're going to go. Some people think there's a recession coming. Some don't, but that in and of itself means uncertainty. And if we as sellers are sitting on our hands, waiting for leads to come in off the back of marketing, figuring out the cost of an action for our customers, we're, we're frankly being super, super lazy. Mm-hmm. And I had this realization. I caught myself in this bad behavior beginning of last year. So 2021. Um, is that, is that what last year was? Like, I know it's like I was fuzzy for me. <laughs> Literally. It was like, I don't want to sound like a moron. Was it? 2021? <laughs> we would just, we would just dub over it with you saying the appropriate year. Maybe we did that. And people don't even know. Maybe you said like 1998. Uh, that's just good to know. That's put the right year in there. Yeah. So beginning of last year, 2021, um, I realized like our inbound low lead flow was really, really small. And my traditional motion in the past was to go back to marketing and be like, what you need to do is this, and you need to do this. And you need, and they're sitting there like, we've got a thousand things that we're working on. Like you are one of 10 people coming to us, barking at us about what we need to do. And I had a moment of realization largely because of the respect that I have for the people on our team. Like they weren't just you know, people who do work. I actually liked them. They were good humans. That helps. Yeah. Right. It does. And I said, I've got to figure out what I can do. I I can either sit here and put my quota in somebody else's hands, or I can take ownership over it. And so what I'm leading to is I, I hate this idea that it's marketing's job to create demand, because I think the power that we have, if we're in marketing, if we're in sales, I don't care who you are, if you're an SME, a sales engineer, is we know a lot about our customers that our customers don't know about themselves. And it all sits in our heads. And we wait for research studies and case studies and white papers. Then then we repost that on Mm -hmm. social and expect people to give a rat's butt about it, right? And they don't because it's all about us and our findings. And so I think the biggest opportunity, especially right now while it's not saturated, is to take that perspective we have about customers' problems, the cost of an action, what it's costing them, and teach customers at scale with that formula. And I don't care. I mean, I I think Gong does a really nice job of humanizing their company social channel. Like they get tons of engagement because they're asking really smart questions and they're using natural language that sellers would use in a social environment. But I think largely for most companies, like the marketing team is putting rigid content out there. Sellers are frustrated when in reality, what we could be doing as sellers is saying, what do I know? Like I just hung up from a sales call. What did I see that customer believing about their own business that was flawed? And how can I lift it up? So it's not unique to that customer, but Hey, a couple customers are seeing this, feeling this, and here's what they think is the cause. Here's what it is in reality and teaching that at scale. So good. Yeah. We, we have these conversations on the marketing side too, saying, you know, what, what is the relationship? And I think you're right to, to flag the idea. Now, just as much as our, the title sometimes is demand generation, mm-hmm. the fact that you're not just saying, oh, you guys, you guys just all on you. You know, when sales, I think especially maybe the last early 10 years ago, we're, we're just sort of giving up and just taking orders, right? So dangerous, right? Because then that's when you got weird stats from Sirius who eventually goes back and says it wasn't yeah. us, you know, it wasn't me about like 80% of the sale happening before they talk to sales. And that was a, a bit of a, you know, like a inaccurate statement. And, and, and like we had Sirius on here and they kind of explained it and it took a whole podcast to explain it, but it was like, <laughs> all right, you know, we're just saying things can happen and things can, oh, fine. Uh, but that was dangerous because then people said, okay, well, let's spend 80% of the budget and let's, I guess sales, you're just 
20%. Like you're just taking orders at an ice cream stand. So we don't really need to invest in you. We don't need to think about you. And that just didn't serve the customer at all. No. And what it created was this attitude. And I saw it. So many sales organizations came and said, like, we are so good at sales. And you're like, you're really good at order taking. And I will say of all the downsides that, you know, the COVID period brought, I think one of the most illuminating things for sales organizations was the recognition that when demand dropped off, like we ain't that good at sales. We're good at responding to existing demand, but selling to me is not just how quickly can I place an order. Selling to me is getting a customer to look at their business in a different way and say, shoot, I see a need for something that I didn't think I did. That is a much higher bar. And I think COVID really exposed that for a lot of organizations when demand dropped off a cliff and they're looking around like, well, what do we do now? No one's calling. Right, right. Crazy town. Okay. (laughs) How, like, where do I start? You know, a lot of us listening, like, okay, on the marketing side and the sales side, it, we were, were doing that. You know, some of us just, while you were talking, we, we, we clicked on the slide at the top of the deck and we just dragged it to the <laughs> bottom, you know, like we were like looking around side eyes, like, Oop, okay, we dragged it down. So we've done that. We've moved that slide down. Where do we go from here? Is there yes. like a list or like, is there a roadmap? What should we do? Yes. I love this question. Okay. So I'll share what I do. It's not perfect, but I think it's a, a, a head start if you're newer to this. So first things first, there is zero excuse for me as a seller to not know what a business cares about today. I don't care if it's private. That used to be a really great excuse. Oh, private. I don't have annual report. Like I can't know what they're doing. <laughs> it's, it's just not the case. Like we are living in a world where more and more companies are recognizing that podcasts like this are a great platform to reach their audience. So one of the very first things I do is I will Google like founder or CEO plus podcast or founder CEO plus interview. And I'll use the, obviously the name of the company I'm targeting. And then I'm going to see what pops up and what are they saying about their own business? What are they saying about what they are trying to achieve? Cause I need to know their end state. Right. Then second is I've got to understand what they currently believe they need to do to get there. Right. So we, we talk about this in terms of current state. This is a belief system. So like, I'll give you a great example. Uh, there were a bunch of companies a couple of years ago who said, hey, we're losing to price a lot or discounting more than we'd like to. So we got to get our sellers in negotiation training, right? That is a belief system. I believe if I move the needle on negotiation, we will make more margin on deals. And what I'm looking for are belief systems that we know based on what we do as a company are flawed. So let's keep playing right. this one out, right? I'm going to keep keep doing this. Yeah, so please. Once I know what they're trying to achieve, we're trying to increase margin, right? Once I know how they think they get there by improving our negotiation skills, that is then telling me what is the belief or assumption that I need to disrupt and show the cost of that. So in that example, actually one of the biggest seven-figure deals I ever sold was off the back of this. We got an inbound call. It was a company who said, you know, we've looked at a few different training companies for negotiation. We know that's what we want and we want to know how you can help. And I asked a really simple question and I said, how did you determine that negotiation was a lever to pull? And she said, well, I don't know. I wasn't part of that decision. All I know is I need you to tell me about your negotiation training. And then I asked, what if negotiation is the wrong answer? Right. And she said, well, I don't know. I, I'm sure they've considered it. And I said, what makes you so sure that they've considered it? 
She said, well, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, your role is in HR. So she wasn't part of the senior executive committee, which frankly, we deal with a lot in sales. And I said, now you're the person in HR that's responsible. It's your budget, right? You're the one that's neck is on the line if this doesn't work. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. That's how it always goes. Okay. So what happens if you spend a million dollars on negotiation training and the problem doesn't go away? She was like, I don't know. Obviously that wouldn't be good, but that's the problem. Right. And and you could sense in her, like in her starting of hesitation, it's not like she fell over and was like, tell me what to do. But I sense the hesitation, which is what I'm looking for. Right. And then I was able to say, maybe just maybe, I know you're farther along and we're coming in late, but would it be worthwhile to share something that we've uncovered that shows that negotiation usually actually isn't the problem. It's much earlier stage. And by solving negotiation, you spend a lot of money on the wrong problem. And so what I was doing there effectively was saying, there is a cost to your belief system that negotiation is the right answer. I don't have to convince her at that point. I just have to seed doubt, right? I have to seed that question mark in her mind to say, oh, maybe it isn't it. Now, this is an, an N of one, right? And, and what I was able to do is then go into that audience and show them like, it's a much earlier stage problem. You're having to compete on price because your customers don't perceive you to be any different than your competitors. But then what I could do is I could take that same message. It's not unique to them and teach it to other companies, right? And I feed it back to marketing and say, I've had enough of these calls where people think negotiation is the problem to solve. It's a symptom. It's not the problem. Can we actually go and create content that stirs up a little uncertainty around pulling the negotiation lever, right? And so then you don't have these wins in isolation, but you're educating the team, you're starting to do fodder, you're posting on social, marketing is talking about it, and you're honing in on the problem and the belief, the flawed belief, instead of buy our challenger training because we'll make you really good at opening the sale. Right. Or just right? agreeing with them and say, oh yeah, negotiation, so yeah. important. You know, that, that's covered in chapter 13, you know? Yeah. We'll, we'll focus on it. We'll spend an extra minute on it. Don't worry. You'll be fine. And then the expectations are completely not aligned and they're unhappy, but they buy the thing maybe, or maybe not because somebody else plays more. It's like a, it's like the, the kind of sick game. Sometimes people play yes. where they're trying to do this people pleasing, like, oh yeah, anything you want. Oh, can that software do that? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in some SaaS sales calls where the AEs are notorious for being like, Use it however you want to use it. I don't even care about best practices. Oh, you want to not use the lead function and just make up your own thing called giraffes? Yeah, go for it. Knock yourself out. And and, it, and people naturally didn't trust them. It, I was just going to say it erodes trust completely because you know, again, buyers are so much smarter than it. They know you're just saying whatever I want to hear to get me to buy. And for a while with Challenger, there was a lot of like skepticism around like, nobody wants to be challenged. People just want to have their needs met. And LinkedIn actually came out earlier this week with their state of sales report. And they did, we had nothing to do with this, but they asked buyers like, do you want to be challenged as part of the sale? Do you want your thinking to be challenged? And 89% of them said yes. And when you start to break it down, it makes a ton of sense, right? Like we are doing so much as buyers to try to figure out what we think we need and where we think we have to go and who supplies it. Right. But we know there's so much conflicting information out there, right? So you start to have a lot of doubt as a buyer. And what I, as a buyer, like when I bought things in a B2B setting, what I'm looking for that seller to do is say like, here's the thing you missed. 
and not in a cheesy, like you miss this feature, but like you miss this aspect about but how wait, it there's more. business. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what I want because then that gives me like more confidence that there's not this massive pitfall I'm going to fall into because the buyer is educating me. You know, I love to get to this part because I love the idea of this, the challenge here. And I found out I was like sort of naturally doing that half because I'm like, well, fine, don't listen to me. But I was sort of just doing this, but it helped reading challenger sale and, and challenger customer and, and all, and all these things really, really helped. But what I love to get to is when you challenge a belief, like that's so unsettling. And, and then at the very beginning, we talked about wanting to be safe. So it's like you've disrupted the safety. How do you make them safe again after spinning their world upside down? Ah, oh, this is such a good question. And you're right, by the way. Like, this is not something we invented. We studied sellers and we just sure. observed there were patterns. So I always like to dispel that myth, like, oh, this isn't. I'm like, yes. Oh, no, you invented it. We learned it. it from people. Jennifer Allen invented <laughs> all sales everywhere. Yes. So when you are doing it, the mistake I made early on before I went through challenger training, but I had read the book is I thought it meant walk into an executive's office. So again, I sell to CSOs for the most part and tell them the way they're doing something is wrong. And I will tell you from experience, there is no faster way to put up someone's defense mechanism and not get a second call than that. So if those are your objectives, like there's a hot tip for you, like do that. Cause it's a really effective way to get shut out. What I learned right is it it doesn't eliminate the need to establish credibility and do really smart discovery. And I had interpreted it as like, oh, you don't ask questions. You just tell them what they missed. Now my approach is I do a lot of prep work in advance, right? I am a big believer that I should not be having the customer tell me anything that's publicly available. And instead of going in and saying, I know this, this, and this about your business, which sounds incredibly pompous. Totally. What I say is like, I'm, you know, I'm appreciative of you making the time today. I spent some time looking at your business and there's a couple things I noticed, um, observations I have, but first and foremost, I want to make sure what I'm missing, right? Cause I know publicly available information isn't the total picture. So here are the things I'm noticing that you're trying to achieve and how it appears that you're trying to get there. But like, what have I missed in my own research? And you immediately set a tone that you are not so naive that you think you have all the answers as someone who doesn't work within their four walls and you have everything, the problem that they are spending nights waking up thinking about, like you've got it all figured out. Like that's a naive motion that I made all the time. So I'm setting that tone that this is a discussion. I know I don't have all the answers, but I'm looking for you to lean in and participate. And I found that by doing that, by showing that I've honed in on very relevant things and I'm at least in the ballpark, even if I'm kind of flawed on some things, they'll say, yeah, no, no, no. What's actually happening there is this. And it immediately brings them into the conversation. And so before you can reframe someone's belief system, you have to get them talking to you and leaning into you and seeing that you're credible in order to earn the right to reframe them. And then when you get to that reframe, which is what you're talking about, we have to do it with a ton of empathy. It is not, you do this wrong because you're stupid, right? Like nobody likes to be told they're stupid or they're wrong. We just don't. Again, it goes back to human behavior. What we need to do is empathize with how they formed that belief, right? They have, were informed by that belief by something they read, a past experience they went through, something that told them this is a good idea. And we need to understand that and be able to relate that back. So very, very tactically, what I mean is like, 
with the negotiation thing, for example, it was like for a long time, fixing the negotiation factor was a really, really effective strategy for, you know, improving margin structure, really, really effective. In fact, I used it here. I saw this company use it here. Now here's what's changed, right? As more customers have access to more information, now they are trying to commoditize you, whether you are different or not. And that has fundamentally changed. So how we respond to that has to change as well. And so you give them an out clause, right? You make it safe. You make it okay that, Hey, you're not the moron who missed something everybody else knows about. Everybody else fell into this trap too. And I'm here because I've got insight into it. I want to help you avoid it or get out of it. Right. So leading with empathy, leading with curiosity, not walking in, like, you know, their entire business have been things that I've made big, big mistakes on and learned to do a little bit differently. Oh, I love that. Uh, just the approach, by the way, I can't wait to listen to this over again and just like write down the specific way you're saying these things. Because <laughs> I will literally clone that and because it's like oh my gosh finally the words (laughs) I I needed to say or we needed to be able to email or send um but the idea of the homework and the discovery I I recently um was on a a sales related call even today Mm. and I had done the homework but I didn't I I didn't do it that way I, I mentioned it like you said but I didn't do the discovery right so this was a great reminder for me you know, do the homework, mention that you have, you don't even need to say what it is just yet. It'll come out and it came out in our yes. conversation. Um, and then, but, but then use that opportunity to discover more and, and, and ask more questions and, and do that from a place of empathy. Um, I recently learned about this thing. Have you heard of the drama triangle? No, tell me. Oh my gosh. The drama triangle. Um, I just Googled it to find out that apparently it's 1960s Stephen Carpman. drama triangle but there's this idea of the um the victim the rescuer and like the hero or like the persecutor on these different sides and when you were describing the wrong way to view that customer and the fact that they have a belief and we're all guilty of this so like you're an idiot but well they're not an idiot like give them a bit of a doubt they they came up with that belief somewhere Maybe they read the wrong white paper, but that means somebody put it in a white paper. They heard it from somewhere. They maybe experienced it. Maybe it was just a fluke or something, but it came from somewhere. So don't try to put yourself in this triangle. It's like, don't try to make yourself the hero and hold them as the victim because then they'll always be that. And then you'll feel like, oh, I'm this. And then that's not a good relationship. So instead, try to transform yourself into a coach. Oh my gosh. Empathy was exactly the the solution is like, if you're acting like a hero, who are you acting like a hero to in your life? Um, And maybe here's the wrong word, but they they also call it persecutor. Like who, who, where there's a villain and there's this, I'm going to save you. And oh, I'm I'm in trouble. No, no, no. (laughs) You're not in trouble. You're okay. And look, this is what I've experienced. And your words even showed that where you said, look, you know, this is how it was. Yeah, you're right. And it's changed. Here's what's changed too. We all want to hear that. Um, and then since that's changed, this other thing has to change too. And I just love the way you're presenting that. That's not like, look, I have special knowledge. Look, I work at Challenger Sale. Mm-hmm. Do you know what Challenger Sale is? This is like the best, <laughs> you know, it's like, look where I work. It's like, no, 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 no. This is where, how, how it's been. This is where it's gone. And I just want you to know that even if we don't work together, just know that maybe your belief should know that this is a little different and take it from there. I just, uh, such a great words. Thank you for, for kind of like walking us through that scenario. 
Oh my gosh. I love that the triangle. And it's, it's funny. I, I learned there's a, um, a guy that I think is so smart um, in the sales space. His name is Bilal Batrawi. And he set me on this idea of like, when you are telling that story, who is the hero in the story, right? When you finish telling that story, do you say, and then challenger came in and we saved the day. And it's like, think about who has to do the work here. The buyer has to do the work. When we talked about the beginning, like all the things that they have to confront when they are in pursuit of buying something, they are the one with everything on the line. So if I tell a story where I am the hero, what, how does that activate my buyer to want to go through like break down brick walls? Like I have to show them you are the hero of this story. And conversely, when I'm early, like that's what I do sort of later stage towards the end of that call, but early stage, I'm showing them here's the hero's demise in another organization when they did, they chose to do nothing. Cause I've got to, again, paint the cost of an action. You have to do the cost of an action. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead of coming and be like, and then they implemented this and everything was rosy. It's like, Here's what happens when they did nothing. And no, he would have never saw it coming, right? Because this worked really, really well until this big thing changed. So you've always got to give that executive an out clause around, it's not you, this this thing over here changed, it changes your strategy. Like, let's talk about it. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. Um, I I pulled it up. Uh, So, you know, we had like the the villain, the villain, the the rescuer and the victim, right? in the rescuer turns into a coach in this drama triangle, but the persecutor turns into a challenger, like literally says that. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is totally right. Right. And like it challenger sale. And so you're not in that situation you're describing, you weren't trying to be the hero, the rescuer or the villain. You're not telling them they suck. Like you said, if you walk into the, that boardroom <laughs> saying it like that, defenses are up, no one wants to be there. Instead, it's like, I'm the, I'm the coach and the challenger. And that way yes. you're no longer the victim. You're the thriver. You're the survivor. You're going to want be the one that made it work. Like this other case study that I can send to you. Yes. Yes. So and good. the villain, I think it's a shared villain, right? It is the problem that is lurking right. underneath the skin that they don't see. And you're exposing it because again, if we think about humans, there's all sorts of stuff around the house. Like I know I need to do, and I just keep trying to get by, by not doing it. What's on the like, list? Oh my gosh. Like we got to clean out all of these drawers. We want to get this, my home office, like reorganized and done and done. Yeah. But like, drawers I'm not are doing tough, it. right? Drawers right? are so tough. They're, they suck. And so I'm like, I'll think of anything else I could do except these things, even though I know they're important but because like I'm getting by without it. Like good is good enough. And that is the same thing we do in a buying motion all the time. hundred percent. I literally went from 219 emails in my inbox down to uh 19 because I didn't want to have to study this other thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like, I know I'll do my email. <laughs> I can't, I can't even fathom. There's someone at our company that has like over a hundred thousand emails in their inbox. And I'm like, they're like, it's just like a searchable folder. I'm like, I can't, I can't with that. It's my to-do I list. Inbox. I need on. strict. I mean, they've worked here forever. So I don't think they've oh. ever filed a single email. Well, I feel, okay. That's how it used to be. But, <laughs> but see, things have changed. You can't have an <laughs> inbox like that. And, and so, because that's changed, your inbox should change too. Yes, Casey. Try this, right? <laughs> uh, so good. It, well, you know, I wanted to shift a little bit and, and talk yeah. about events, events, because we we're talking about visiting on sales calls and whatnot. Are events coming back? What are you seeing? And are there some good ones that we should keep our eyes open for? 
Yeah. Great. Qu- timely question. I um, went to my first event post COVID a couple of weeks ago um, from sales assembly and sales assembly, as many people know, is a community. Um, and it's, it's primarily sales organization, sales leaders and their teams who recognize the need to upscale and develop their people. Right. So it's a great audience for us because sometimes cool. you have a sales leader who's like, I don't think we need to train. Everybody knows what they need to know. So I enjoy going to those events because the quality of the attendees is pretty high. So they did an event called Remix in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I think they've taken it on the road into other cities. And um, they had some really cool speakers who were talking about, so one was Todd Capone, and he was talking about how history repeats itself. Um, So he threw up a timeline from, and I didn't know any of this which I'm embarrassed about because I've been selling for a while, but he threw a timeline up of what happened in like the 1910s and twenties and then showed what's happening in the 2010s and twenties. And it was like completely aligned. In no way. Happening with the economy. It was crazy. And his whole message message was around like how history repeats itself. And by not learning from history, we tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And it was a really, really well-received session. And to me, it's like, that's the kind of stuff I gravitate towards when someone opens my eyes to something that I'm like, gosh, I didn't know anything about that. Like to sit through a presentation that's like, here's a five tactics on discovery. I'm like, I might learn a couple and that's fine. But that was opening up a whole new dialogue. So I tend to love events like that, where speakers are actually teaching the audience, not around just classically held belief systems and things like that. So that was a good one. Um, that, and that's then, by the way, I thought you when you're describing history, you were going to say like you didn't know about the Civil War or something <laughs> like my kids didn't know about Paul Revere. And I had to be like, what? You know, first so, of all, how but, old do you think I am? I'm like the 1910s but... <laughs> and 20s. I, yeah, I don't know either. Like, I, I really don't. Yeah. I yeah. Don't. No, it was really, really fascinating stuff. I think he's got a new book coming out. Um, and anyway, it was really cool. Um, so that was one. And then. uh who was it? It was Mary Shea over at Outreach. She used to be with Gart or with Forrester. She was okay. sharing all sorts of stuff around the dynamics of how millennials are stepping into and Gen Z are stepping into um, buyer and influencer roles and how vastly different they make buying decisions than boomers. And it was one another one of those topics where I'm like, I'm like massively uneducated on this thing. And so these big shifts are happening and I think it's on us to stay informed. And that's what I really look for at events. It's not the swag. It's not the networking. It's not that stuff. It's like, what do I need to know? And I, and I don't about being effective in sales today. Right. It's like selling to a completely different generation. What am I going to do when my kids are old enough to buy from my companies? You know, yes. and my son the other day was like, we were playing at recess and we played this game and that was sus. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, that is part of my vocabulary now. It's begun. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mine too. <laughs> you can't, you can't claim all the words though. Some of them you try to use and you just, it just, it sounds like, okay, you, you probably bussin'. shouldn't be using that. Yeah. Have you heard bussin' yet? Bussin'. Like this is bussin'. bussin'. Yeah. How about that's fire? Oh yeah. So like on fire it, anymore. It's just, it's just fire. We drop all prepositions and everything's <laughs> that's fire oh that's fun or that's that's a lit i mean let's classic yeah you know, yeah i think now. lit might not even be gen z anymore i think they're no, like that's it's lame it's just the cycle of these things are so fast too just when i think i can use it it's like ah, no that's not cool anymore seriously are we going through like all the elements right so we had lit so we had like lightning now we're doing like it's fire so later on we'll be like oh that's water water and then later on it'll be like that's earth 
that's earth then we'll go back to lit again you know we'll just like heard cycle it through. here first Casey <laughs> right, right, is we... taking the trademark on that's earth <laughs> that's earth right now somewhere the illuminati's like they're on to us <laughs> 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 so good oh well, that's awesome well this next question i have for you is literally around challenge so what what are the challenges you're facing right now other than the drawer that needs cleaning out mm. maybe you could just do a live do like a facebook live and clean out your drawer with people watching. <laughs> yeah really fun. tens of people would watch right? <laughs> tens of <laughs> tens of many tens of many people uh, but like what what are the challenges that you're facing in your role these days what keeps yeah. you up so a big one right now is the market uncertainty so again it's not like there's anything confirmed like hey we're all losing our jobs and losing Doomed. our homes like it's not doom and gloom yet but the uncertainty factor makes it tough. And I'll tell you specifically, like we sell to um, like what we would describe as kind of like mid-market companies and large enterprise companies, the large enterprise sector. I don't necessarily see a ton of disruption to that yet, but the growth companies like that mid-market phase growth companies who have been bloated with people and talent for, you know, the past few years and cash and funding. And they've just been like, what can I spend this on? has gone yeah. so, so dramatically to the other end of the spectrum. And so I unfortunately had a couple deals that were competitive deals, beat out all the competitors. I mean, we're talking like six months of working these things, get to signature stage, get to contract review. And then, you know, get, we even got to the point of messaging it to the entire organization, like in different teams, we're, this is what we're doing with you and you and you. Um, as we were wrapping up contract signature and then had a massive cash flow problem and said, we can't do this right now. And we hope we can do it in Q3, but we actually don't know if the cash flow problem is going to be fixed by then. And that is like so defeating because you look back and you say, man, I checked all these boxes. I jumped over all these hurdles. Right. And then this thing over here, it's like, and, and I always try to be sensitive, right? Like I'm not going to sit there when they're telling me, Hey, we're laying off people and say, but here's the ROI of challenger. If you do, like, I think you really need to be a human because the chances of you winning that are quite low. And then yeah. you want them to come back around. Right. So I think I'm a big fan of being respectful when anytime someone's job is at risk or they are laying off people. Like, I think you got to pull away a little bit from the sales motion, unless that's like part of what you sell. Yeah. Um, but that's hard. I mean, I, I'll be honest, like that's a really, really difficult challenge right now is watching some of those late stage deals just completely fall apart with no guarantee of if and when they'll come in. Yeah. And those beliefs, like it is so much the opposite. We see this in marketing too, where, okay, things are not going well. It doesn't mean you cut marketing. It doesn't mean you stop selling. Like that's the only, you need that group that doing things, maybe you need to be a little more efficient because maybe you didn't need someone dedicated just to the beer fridge but that aside you know you, you do need to have the revenue side generating and, and nothing could do that better than using your existing team and train them that's probably the lowest low cost option you have call me biased and also you have competitors you don't need to name them but like i can't none even come to mind other than maybe like oh let's talk about submarines <laughs> um but like I don't know. So I, I hear the challenge, but you know what? It's like my logical brain. I'm like, that shouldn't even be a challenge. But back to your original point. Yes. Emotional. We have these beliefs and the beliefs aren't crazy. They, they think that's what's probably right. And so you, you're having to use the same methodology and try to show them that things are different. Maybe the maybe pointing out the 1910s and 20s will help. But either way, I, I, I hear I hear that challenge. I hear where, yeah. you're, at, where you're at. 
And I think one thing I've learned as a result of this, I always think like a bad, like a deal that's lost is, is some of the best fodder for learning. Right. So I mm-hmm. try not to get too depressed about it. But um, one of the things I've learned is oftentimes that what you, exactly what you described, like, do we start hacking into sales and marketing is determined by who is at or near the top of the organization. And if you look at them, it is the people who have like lean manufacturing and finance background. And like, you can look at their job history and then you can kind of, it's not hundred percent accurate, but like you kind of get a signal to, Hey, when it's tough, their default motion is probably going to be to cut, not to grow. And so now what I did is I looked at all the other deals, in my pipeline, and I said, who's leading the organization? Are they a cutter? Are they a grower? And so the ones where like, maybe the person came from sales or general management, I was like, okay, I, I'm a little bit more confident about those. There was a one that, you know, the guy was a former CFO before he came CEO. And I'm like, well, wonder what he's going to do. Good luck so on that just, one. <laughs> this yeah. helps knowing like what I'm up against and what the tone of the organization may be. Interesting. Cause I, I was wondering if you were going to change the way I'm sure you're doing both, not only focusing on the ones who understand the growth right away, but then for the ones that are in the process of trying to shrink things and cut things, speaking their language, because I mean, I could even see, you know, cutting maybe your, your, your non-closers, but train the ones you still have. So maybe you get better, better output out of them, but yeah, it not, not being a one size fits all type message for sure. Yeah, no, it's such a great way of saying it. One size fits all does not work. You have to look at the culture of the organization, what they're trying to do. Look at their last statement. Does it look like, man, they've been blowing cash like crazy. And and none of this stuff was stuff that I think I appreciated this year because things were so good until they weren't. And, you know, that's what, that's what we do. We learn, we learn from it. We change up. Isn't it crazy when things work? We're not exactly sure why. Well, you shouldn't really be because you might to our original point. Yeah, you whatever that loss reason is, it probably isn't that. And your win reason is probably even more inaccurate. So yeah. when things are going well, you're not necessarily sure about anything. But when you lose it, it's painful, but you get those really sharp learning lessons. Crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm just really freaking curious now. Like, who are you? <laughs> who are you? How do you know these things? How are you? You're like this oracle of all things sales. Oh, my gosh. You no, I'm not. Sales. Jennifer Allen invented sales. There you, Can you go. Take me back in time, like little you, little you, mm-hmm. little Jen. Did you always know you're going to be in sales? Were you selling stuff in the, on the block? Like what? I think the number of people who say yes to that question is so few and far between. Like sales is just this land of misfits of people who intended to do something else. And then we're like, oh, how did I get here? Like sales is icky. So no. College is I- over already? <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely me. So like- little girl, Jen, I loved being involved in like acting and singing and all of that stuff. Like I loved being on stage. I thought that was really fun. I was really good at school, cared a lot about, you know, getting good grades and all that stuff. And then when it became my senior year, there was one school I wanted to go to. It was Boston university. And I thought I wanted to go for sports journalism. Well, I got some scholarships, but Boston university at the time was like $30,000, which I came up from a really, really like low middle-class family that was out of the question. And so my mom had told me apply to Penn state as your safety school in case you don't get into Boston. So my mindset was if I get into Boston, I get to go to Boston and I got in and I remember the look on her face. I think she kind of thought I wouldn't get in and was hoping that I might not get in. So she didn't have to have this conversation with me, but she was like, there's just no way, there's no way we can afford to send you there. And I was so 
bummed out about it because I looked at all the work I had done. And I said, I always got good grade. I was in every extracurricular activity. Like I did everything right. And I didn't get the outcome I deserved. Right. right? And so I went to Penn state and I completely changed, like didn't care at all about class, barely went to it, like changed my major to, and I rarely share this, but I changed my major to recreation and park management. Hell yeah. This the easiest major to not parks have to go rec. to classes. Yes. Yeah. We named this episode parks and rec. No, <laughs> no. that's the old year. <laughs> so I got into that stopped going to class. And then it came time in my senior year, I had to get an internship. And so I went to this like career fair. I saw this really small company called Collegiate Athletic Travel. It was a family-owned company, like six people in State College, Pennsylvania, where I was. And so I said, this is kind of cool. They plan final four and bowl game trips for alumni organizations. I'm going to do this because this would be like a cool reason to go to games. So I started and I will say it, it taught me a lot. Like I learned graphic design. I forget most of it, but I learned graphic design. I learned scenario planning, which has been beneficial to me in my career because you're watching a game being like, if Maryland wins, we do this. If this other team wins, we do oh, this. Sure. And it's, you know, really short decision-making periods. I think that's all very beneficial skills. But I realized really like after a year of doing it, I had already graduated and I'm looking around like, do I want to live in central Pennsylvania my whole life? I don't think so. And so I had a roommate at the time um, who had started working at corporate executive board or CEV, which was then acquired by Gartner. And she said, you should come work in the event management department here. It's like super cool, young company, smart company. And that was all it took to sell me on it. And so the way I actually got into sales is I went to interview for an event management position and the phone interviewer of me at the time said, we're actually going to have you interview for account management. And I was like, whatever, if it gets me out of here. <laughs> So that's how I ended up getting yeah, into account having no idea. It's like a completely different, like, whatever, let's do this. <laughs> Managing things. Right. And I remember I walked into that interview and I met the woman who would ultimately become my first boss. And I was just blown away by her. Like she had such a force of presence. I thought she was so cool. She like was one of those people where like you sit up a little taller when, you, yeah, when yeah. she's talking. And I was like, Oh, like I want to be like her. And, um, she her, like working for her sold me on the job. What's her name? Do you want to give her a shout out? Yeah. Jesse Dingwell. Um, she was my boss for about six months and I attribute the reason I stayed in sales actually to her because wow. very early on, I just realized like who she was in terms of her ability to call. I was working for the marketing leadership council, which was like a fortune 500 network of CMOs and we're selling them an annual subscription to best practice sure. research. And listening to her on those calls, like go head to head with like Pepsi and Walmart and all these badass companies. And I'm like, I want to be like that. Like, I just want to figure out how to be like that. And I learned a ton from her. And it, again, it's the reason I attribute to being in sales. And one of the things I think about all the time is how many people like me stepped into a job and then worked for that manager who was just like, it's hustle. And it's like, <laughs> how many numbers are you doing? And then they get out of sales. Like I, for that reason, I think that role of that manager is just so incredibly important. Oh, so true, right? You could easily have just a like a grind taskmaster and then have, I had a similar experience where, where I had a sales coach and he was the CEO of this company and he would just like, he was great. And he would point out little things and speak to me at my level and, hey, you're, you spend too much time on this or watch out for that. And it was great. You know, it's yeah. so encouraging. And then if, if you get a couple of no's in a row, you'd go get me a drink. 
at the trade show, you know, I'm like, here, take it, take a second. You'll be fine. And then you get a couple of yeses, you know, and then you're off to the races. That's, that's awesome. Well, shout out to her. That's great. So she kind of, she really inspired you then to just keep doing it. She did. And so what happened is after about six months, there was an opportunity for her that opened up in London to take a bigger job. We were in DC at the time and wow. she took it. And our managing director, who was the the woman above her, was like, hey, I went to her office and I was like, hey, is there any way I can like backfill Jesse's role? And she said, you're six months into this company. Absolutely not. I'll tell you what you can do for the next few months. You can cover Jesse's territory and we're going to interview other people externally because we need someone with more experience, but you can cover it for now to see if you like the job. So I kind of lucked out. They interviewed a ton of people, didn't find a great sit, fit. And I, maybe it was like four or five months went by and Lily called me into her office and she was like, all right, you've got the job. You've kept her renewal rates up. Like you can have it. And that stuck with me. It really wow. did. That experience of being like, I'm going to prove myself and someone not believing in me. I didn't actually get upset about it. It was like, oh, now I have a challenge and it's something I really want to work for. And so I know there's like, you know, two philosophies on that. Like, don't do the job until you get paid for it. Or, you know, you have to show, do the job you want. I, in my career, it's always been core to my um, belief system that like, if you want a job that's different or higher up, like you've got to give someone a reason to believe in you that you can do it. Um, so that was a big driver for me. Yeah. You became the status quo. Mm, you, yeah. you became the safe bet, right? Yes. You're already getting renewals. Do we stay with you or do we go to the risky third party random new person in the company? I yeah, never you... thought about it like that. I love that. Yeah. You removed the risk by just doing that. Yeah. I mean, it, in the numbers follow later, but you, you showed that you earned that, but what a cool moment did have, you have like little sparklers go off in your head when <laughs> she told you that? Like, I did. Yeah. I mean, I like, I think I ran out and called my mom and she was like, I'm so proud of you. And awesome. it was just a cool, cool thing. And then, uh, you know, I built my reputation or my personal brand at that company as someone who was willing to try things and do the hard thing. So, a, like a year later, the CEO called and was like, Hey, we want to pilot this new organizational structure, but before we do it, we want to test the model. Would you be willing to take like $9 million under management and five or six people, it's five people and run that to see if it would work. And it was a huge, huge undertaking for me at the time. And I was like, yeah, I said, yes. And then I figured it out later and it was an awesome experience. And I think like every couple of years, at least if I, if I wasn't being presented with an experience like that, I would go and create one. So there was like, I was in account management for like seven years. And then I remember there was one day where I was like, you know, I would have um, renewal and upsell cross sell. Yeah. And I remember I was looking at my calendar for that day. I was doing like an account day at a healthcare company out here in Chicago. And I'm like, what meetings am I looking forward to? And it was like the upsell cross sell ones and the renewal ones. I was like, I think I got it in the bag. Like it's not that big of a deal. And I realized that day I was like, I want to flip to a hunter and I want to try it. And I was so scared of doing it because one of the beauties of account management is you never end the year at zero. Like, I don't care what you sell, like, well, at least one person's going to renew it. And shifting to that was really, really scary, but I felt like I didn't see anything else scary on the horizon. And I was like, I need to do something. Otherwise I'm going to get bored. I'm going to want to leave. And then if I leave and it sucks, 
then I've thrown away this amazing brand that I've built at this organization. And so just every few years, at first it was like the peer hunter role. Then it was switching over to challenger. Then when I went to challenger, then it was like, you know, we were in like a farmer model. Then we switched to hunter model. And then after that, a couple of years of that, I moved into this evangelist model this year. So I think for me, it's always been really important to make sure there's something scary, something challenging. And I know it probably sounds a little cheesy, but I I genuinely mean it. Like I need to be highly engaged in my work. And I think one of the things I always try to coach people around is there's probably more opportunities than you think inside of your own company. Like you don't necessarily have to leave to get that kind of stuff, but you do have to be confident enough to ask. That that stuck out to me. The fact that you went in there having been there for six (laughs) months, it was like, Hey, what about this? Like not a lot of people do that. And I've had friends that go and get more advanced degrees and none of that people aren't going to automatically ask you to fill that role. You have to advocate for yourself. And you did yeah. that. And that that's, that's so huge. I feel like if, if there's a mad, if there's a way to teach that in school, that would be so much more helpful. Like you skip all the classes you want, but learn this thing and you are good. Absolutely. So good. It's why, I, I mean, it's why I'm such a big fan of podcasts like this. And mm-hmm. like when you actually get to know someone's story of how they got to where they are, because we all have assumptions like, okay, if you're a seller, you have to sell like 200% of your goal two years in a row, and then you can move up to sales manager. And when your team gets 200% of goal, then you can move up to sales VP. And it's like, yeah, that is emotion for some people, but some other people have like completely unconventional motions. Like I did, like I never moved up from manager to VP. Like I just found a way to do more of what I liked by being creative. Yeah. And it's so cool looking at your LinkedIn where you, it shows at CEB, you were like this, and then you were this, and then you were this. And it wasn't a short period. It was like a long time. It's so cool to see. I mean, one, that's a credit to you for for doing that and fighting that battle, but also a credit to the company yes. for allowing that. Because a lot of companies don't, and then you just got to bounce so you can get that next challenge. That is such a good point. Like I, I am so fond of my time at that company for that exact reason you just said. And the only way you know if a company is like that, it goes back to what you said a moment ago, is you have to ask, right? Mm. Like if you are just sitting and waiting and hoping this company is going to do right by me, you are putting your fate in someone else's hands. And I think it was so important to me to be able to ask for something, see how it was received. And like you said, like the worst you're going to get is a no, right? And then you ask, well, why? And then you learn what you need to get better at instead of sitting around hoping that sometime like someone's going to be like, go take this promotion. So yeah, I think the company you work for is huge. And if you consistently ask and you're consistently met with no, and the feedback is not specific or helpful, like that to me, if that ever happened to me would be a huge sign to switch. But I sit here and say that after like basically being with the same company for 17 years, like it's a lot harder than I think it sounds. Sometimes I give people a lot of credit when they make that move and they're confident about it. Yeah. Yeah. I made it all the time. I just, until, until I figured out what was the right thing. And then I was like, Oh, this is good. I'm I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay. This is comfy. I'm going to, I like this. It's challenging yet comfy. I'm I'm going to hang out here. Um, tell me about this evangelist role and why is it that all the coolest people I know, (laughs) Alice, bomb, bomb, all these other companies have evangelists, kudos to all of them. But like, how did you get in that role and what does it feel like? And what do you do there? Oh my gosh. So actually bomb, bomb. It's interesting. You mentioned that. So Ethan, who's their evangelist. Shout out to Ethan. What's up? Yeah. What's up our homie? What's up, dude? (laughs) 
he actually wrote an article where he interviewed Guy Kawasaki and he was like considered, I think the founder of evangelism or the, the lead guy on it. And then Dan Steinman, who kind of created the whole like customer success motion and evangelized that and a couple other guys. And he was um, having them explain how they got to the role, how they measure their success, what they do. And I think I was just like screwing around on LinkedIn and I came across it and I was like, oh, this, like this job sounds awesome because I will say after 17 years selling, and I still carry a bag because it helps in evangelizing what I do to be like in that motion. Yeah. But what I loved about it is I started to notice that the thrill for me was more on the early side of the deal. And then the close of the deal, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's cool to get an incentive check, but it didn't Ring have the, bell, the same. Hit the gong, let's go. <laughs> There's no gong. This is what I celebrated. But a gong, you like a mini gong. No. That I'm is gonna like send that. you one. No, you are not. Do not waste <laughs> your money. It was like that wasn't as exciting to me anymore. Like again, I liked right. money, but it wasn't like I didn't get the same thrill. What I really loved was doing like an outbound motion, taking someone who felt they had no need for challenger and doing what we talked about early on, like exposing a cost of inaction and getting that senior person to lean in and say, like, okay, I'll give you some more time. Like that was super, super cool to me. And so I reflected on what Ethan had written in the article. And I said, man, if I could make a whole job out of this, like this feels like something I'd be really excited to do every day. And at Challenger, we have a really unique problem in the sense that lots of people know the Challenger sale and the Challenger customer books. So few people know that Challenger Inc. exists. And so you get all these people on LinkedIn who are like, I love Challenger. And then they're DIYing it at their own companies. And so I used a lot of what I learned from Ethan and I put together a job description based on the objectives of our company and where I felt like we had a cost of inaction, right. use cost of inaction everywhere. And I presented it to our CEO. And to your point earlier, I'm very lucky to work for a company who is very open to trying new things. And I just said, look, I think it, by doing these activities that I've listed in my job description, I think we can close the gap a little bit on the lack of awareness that Challenger Inc. exists and education on the market of the problem that we solve. Because it's a it's somewhat of a tough thing to teach. It's not like, hey, we sell negotiation. So she responded really positively to it. And like my other job, um, I waited until I had some evidence of success. So I spent seven months last year, like getting on podcasts like these, writing content on LinkedIn sharpening my skills there. And I had, um, a few big deals originate, not just mine, but others in my DMS on my LinkedIn. Wow. And I was able to point back to it and say, look, this CSO would have never filled out a lead form. They would have either handed it down to someone else, or they just would have done nothing, but they reached out to me and said, Hey, okay, I've always heard about this thing, but I've got a lot of skepticism about it. Like, I don't want to be thrown into a sales cycle. Can you just tell me a little bit more about like challenger? And it was a safer entry point for senior executives to start the conversation. And there were some conversations where I said, like, I actually don't think you need this or it's not the right time for you for whatever reason. And I think that breeds goodwill. And then for the ones that did handing those off, it also kind of helped the AE a little bit because there was less upfront work they had to get right. Like now they were already in a mid-stage sales process. And so for us, it's been really, really, really good. Um, and I think a lot of companies, I'm getting a lot of people reaching out being like, Hey, we're trying to figure out like, should we have an evangelist? And I, and I'm, I'm candidly hopeful more companies adopt it. And then in like 10 years, 
evangelists are just the sale salespeople. Like that's just how like sellers show up. Like that to me would be awesome that you no longer need an evangelist in a company. And before that happens, can we have like a, like a a mascot battle where we have all the evangelists like (laughs) compete in like wizard chess or something like that and just battle each other out like like jen versus ethan to the to the death you know oh my gosh i will <laughs> i will certainly raise that with ethan to see if he's okay game for uh, what was that show that used to be on where they had like fire and ice and american gladiators oh remember that show you guys can race up the wall I- you know and like <laughs> me and a couple other people will chase after you and i'll try to pull ethan off the off the climb that's perfect yeah we'll, we'll pitch it to him but to, we can't <laughs> We can't just like all out tell him he's in this competition because he'll he'll probably reject that. So we we gotta we gotta do a little you know how it used to be. Ethan is this and how where yes. it's going is this, and the cost of him not being in the evangelist ah. gladiatorial games is just too high, too high for him. Easy, that is brilliant. And then we'll get him a, like a unitard that he can wear. I'm sure that'll yes. really clinch it. Yes, I'll be like his squire, and I'll like have a, hold a flag that has his bomb bomb logo colors on it. <laughs> so good. So tell me, who are good fits? Who who should be reaching out to you? Challenger Inc. is this company that exists. Training is what I heard, but like, can you just kind of give us the give us the pitch? Tell us about what it is. Yeah. So I think, you know, I talked a lot today about the no decision loss, right? And I think what companies under appreciate or undervalue is just how much of their pipeline deals are lost to that. So when we studied it, the average number of pipeline opportunities that were truly lost to no decision was 38%. I don't care what you sell. There's nothing greater than that as a loss reason in your CRM right now. And chances are your sellers are marking it something else. It's awful, right? So I think 40% of the stuff you're working on like 60 hours a month, you're just throwing out the window. So great fits for us are companies who are seeing their sellers lose to price or customer just ghosts them or customer says like, it's not the right time. And they're seeing it consistently enough that they realize that there's something broken about the sales and marketing message. And then what we do is we come in and it's not as simple as like, put your sellers in a classroom. Like I use this analogy all the time. Like I constantly ask our kids to pick up their bath towels after they shower and they're always on the bedroom floor. Yeah. And then the other the day, all the time, all right? the time. And they're yet to meet a parent who's like, no, nah, my kids are cool. Like they're on the floor. And the other day, Muggsy, my dog peed on one of them and yep. he did a better job of exposing cost of inaction than anything I could have ever done in terms of my pitch to them. Clearly I was pitching ROI, but anyway, but my point <laughs> is like, you think about that as a child that has maybe like one year formed of that behavior. Now go out to a sales organization and take someone who's been selling 20, 30 years, try to get them to change through eight hours of a workshop. You're going to be disappointed. Mm. Right. And so it's a much larger conversation that we have with organizations to say, let's look at the pitch deck. Let's look at what the content you're putting out. Let's look at where you're teaching customers and where they go to learn. Are you in the right places? And now let's look at what you're saying. And that I think is where we are a little bit uniquely different in the sense that we're not teaching you a process or a checklist or whatever else. Like we are teaching you, what do you show up and say, what are the words that come out of your mouth to create cost of an action for your customers? So it's a really cool opportunity. Cause like I said before, there's some companies who just don't need us. Like if they've got demand and orders are flying in the door, like there's no need to buy challenger unless you see something on the horizon that's going to disrupt that. But a lot of companies struggle with it. 
Well, like what you said, uh, is it's not just the methodology. It's like, you're going to help us figure out the words because how many times have I seen groups I'm with, you know, spend money on consulting and, and the, the result was you should have the same message. You should all have the same shared message and you should make sure it, res- it resonates with the, with the buyer. It's like, okay, I knew that. <laughs> What, what, what should we say? Wow. That 10K would have been great if you actually told me what to say. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, uh, that's fantastic that you help with that. What size companies? Are there, are there too small? Are they too big? Just right. What's the perfect size? Yeah. If you asked me that a couple months ago, I'd have been like, yeah, there's a too small. This is crazy. One of the AEs on our team sold to a 16-year-old founder who had no salespeople but he was obsessed with Challenger. And he said, I'm going to build this sales organization from the get-go the right way. And I need to make sure that I don't make mistakes in my assumptions about Challenger. And I was like, this deal is never closing. And and it did. We were like, that's crazy. That's wild. So it's definitely not our ICP. um, But for the (laughs) most part, it it should be, (laughs) right? I will say we are starting to see growth for, from some companies. Like I think the smallest company I sold to this year was 250 people. I would have never seen that in my pipeline a few years ago, but I do think that some organizations who are a bit smaller feel a little bit more agility where we're actually seeing a little bit slower progress is in large enterprise. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like trying to steer the Titanic and get everybody to believe like, Hey, pull your people off the line and change your conversation. And there's 50 people that need to agree So it's not to say we, I mean, a lot of our customers are large enterprise, like that was how we grew up. Um, But we are shifting a little bit in terms of who is joining this year in terms of some more smaller size companies. Yeah. Maybe you've just been using, you know, younger and younger words, you know, our conversation from lit and fire, maybe that is just converting people in mass. So um, really kind of a final question for you. It's a bit of a hypothetical question because see, I may or may not have a time machine here in New Hampshire. Mm. So you come visit. And we get some lobster, some beer. You get to use the time machine, right? It's lovely. It's in the it's in the backyard. It's covered with tarp. You know, it's all good. It, it, and but you get to use this time machine, and it's very special. You get to go meet yourself a couple days after graduating from school, and you get to meet yourself, and you can tell yourself anything you want, and it won't mess up the space time continuum. You won't create flashpoint. What do you tell yourself? What advice do you give yourself? Easy question for me because I think about this all the time. Yeah. I would say, Jen, stop showing up the way you think you need to show up to be a good salesperson and figure out how to make your unique personality your superpower. So what I mean by that is when I first started learning how to sell, I like we talked about, I was never considering myself a salesperson. And so I had a big, big amount of imposter syndrome. And so what did I do? I looked at the people that were really successful and said, I need to sound like them. I need to say the things that they say. And I focused so much on my voice, my tone, my words, words, trying to use like buzzwords because I thought that would mean I was in the know to a CMO. And it just made me sound completely naive. Like it completely backfired on me. And I didn't realize it for years. Like Fortunately, I was good enough in some other parts of the job to do all right, but it wasn't until there was one um, CMO that I worked with back at GE Healthcare. I mean, this was like early 2000s. And I remember we finished our meeting and she was like, let's go get a coffee. And I was like, oh, I was terrified. I was like, I hate small talk. I hate like eating in front of like prospects. And I was really nervous. 
And we sat down and she just talked to me about all the stuff that was going on at the company and how frustrated she was. And she was talking to me like a human being. And I was like, shoot, everything, like everything I've taught myself isn't going to work here. And I, one, just shut up and listen to her. And two, I just like allowed myself to talk to her. Like I was talking to one of my friends and we formed such a bond over that. And it showed me like when I show up like a human, when I show up, like how my friends saw me, like, you know, I'm not the most extroverted person. I think this job brings out extroversion because it's where I feel really confident and comfortable. Right. But when I am not trying to be the smartest person in the room, when I'm not trying to sound like I know everything, when I'm not trying to like, you know, not show weaknesses or confusion, what it meant was sometimes I would be afraid to, to ask a question. Like I would be sitting there listening to CMO. I'd be like, I don't even know what that word means, but I got to just pretend like I do and try to change the subject. Like she taught me it's okay to be like, I'm sorry, I got to stop you. Like, I'm not familiar with what you're saying. And the first time I tried it, I was petrified. And it's not to say that like it works every time, but what I found is like that person was like, oh, okay, let me like, this is what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. And dropping that facade and realizing like the more I am just myself and stop trying to put on this like sales cloak, the better my conversations became because I was really authentic. And again, I know like authenticity is like kind of become a, you know, cheesy token word, but I really do believe like you're, we are in a, a, a profession where we are constantly trying to get competitive differentiation, but we let ourselves try to show, sound like everybody else, which is like makes zero sense. So right. being who you are and letting that show in your customer conversations, I wish I had done that a lot sooner. Oh man. What great advice that is, you know, not to try to mimic yeah, it's funny because I was even asking you the like the words. I'm like, I'm so gonna just copy your words, but it's like, okay, have some good framework, have a good way of saying it, but just be yourself. Don't try to be Jen. Don't try to be someone else. Be Casey, whoever. So be yourself. I love that. Let your personality be your your. What'd you say? Selling point. I think it was what you said. Your superpower. Your superpower. Yeah. Love that. Whew. Well. Wait, wait. Before we end, what's your answer to that question? Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Um, because I've asked that of a lot of people, which is really kind of a honor and blessing to be able to yeah. ask people that. Um, for me, it's definitely uh looking for the areas where like where the passion is at, you know, and like where you're in that passion zone, um, kind of like your expertise and your passion, they kind of collide, and you're like, whoa, I'm really good at this, and I would do this all night long and don't even have to pay me just look for those times when I'm in that. And I think in the past, I, I didn't always know if I was in it or not. And I wasn't being intentional about it until eventually founding a company. And I was like, Oh, I love Pardot. I love this tool. I love this thing. And so later on, I, I started sensing that feeling that, and that's how I discovered, Oh, I love podcasting and went all in on that. And so I'm starting to pay attention more to what lights me up. And, and I know that, you know, if I'm, working on something that's in that zone, I have like unlimited ammo or unlimited gasoline in, in the tank. The Tesla battery will not ever go empty, right? If I'm in that zone, but anytime I stray out of it, that's when the energy just drops hardcore. So just to, just to pay attention to that. And I wouldn't even tell myself what those things are. I would just say, you know, pay attention to those feelings. And sometimes it's just a, a matter of like, do I have feelings about anything? I'm really happy. I'm really mad. I'm really I'm like, okay, that's usually associated with something. And I would just teach myself to just zero in on that so that I'd have, you know, the unlimited energy 
to go after it. Well, I think you've definitely found your intersection of like passion and expertise because this is like, I just looked at the time. I'm like, where did oh, it did go? You? This was so fun. I it's really a time warp, it. right? <laughs> you did put me in this time machine. This was I did. Yeah. So where could people connect with you if they want to reach out either just to connect with you and just be in your network, follow you on LinkedIn or even get info on Challenger Inc and all that. Yeah. So I'm big on LinkedIn. I love spending time there. Um, please connect with me. I have the follow button, but don't be shy about connecting. Um, and then, uh, I host a podcast for challenger every week. Um, it comes out every Tuesday. It's called winning the challenger sale anywhere you get your podcasts. And then if you're curious to learn more about challenger, it's challengerinc.com. Um, but like I said, feel free to reach out to me if it's a safer, easier way to, to get started learning more. Love it. We'll put all that in the show notes for those listening. You can just click right on through. You don't have to Ooh. type anything. You can just literally <laughs> touch it with your nose if you want to, if you're running and it'll just magically take you where you need to go. Technology. Um, man, I know. Seriously. <laughs> this has been so much fun. Thank Agreed. you for being on here. I mean, wow. Thank you. You bring so much fun and energy and I've really enjoyed spending this time with you, Casey. You're a pro at what you do. Well, thank you. That coming from an evangelist as yourself, that, <laughs> that's high praise. I really appreciate that. And and I and I want to just kind of, you know, shake the phone here. And for those listening, if you learned something, and I freaking know you did, because I literally have two pages of notes. I literally ran out of space. Like I'm like writing down here. Aww. I have I have no room. Like I, I have to show this because I don't want people are like, oh, you're just saying that. Like, no, I literally need more paper. Um, but yeah, if you learn something, the idea of the cost of inaction and, and the aversion of loss and all the things we talked about here today, is so much in this episode. If you learn something, then share this episode with like one person, nine people, 4,000 people, 9 billion people, whatever the number <laughs> that's thought leadership. So go after share this information with someone else. Again, Jen, you are a superhero. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you so much, Casey. All right, everybody. This has been another crazy, cool, exciting episode of the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll see you all next time.